Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. We have here today. Oh, one second. Oh, I'm getting some feedback. One second. There you go. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, false start. There we go. Uh, yeah, thanks everyone for coming out. We have uh, Michael Millerman with us here today. And uh, Michael and I are embarked on a more ambitious uh, project at the moment, actually. Uh, Michael is going to be developing and delivering a focused, serious eight-week course all about Leo Strauss through my kind of course catalog or course system. For those of you who don't know, since I left my career as an academic about a year and a half ago, one of the major things I've been working on is developing high quality online courses for people out in the world who maybe want to work hard on learning, whether it be philosophy or science or what have you, but they just don't want to for many different reasons. They just don't want to go get a PhD or even a master's degree. They just want to do deep engagement with certain questions, certain thinkers, certain texts, and they want to do it with really intelligent, similarly engaged people. And yeah, uh, there's a ton of people in my ecosystem who are interested in this. And when I realized that I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to build some systems and structures to uh, start creating this type of serious intellectual experience at scale. So I've now done many courses. I'm happy to say I've, I've actually learned quite a thing or two about how to do it. Well, I've done a course on Deleuze. I've done a course on Bataille with Nina Power. I've done courses on Deleuze and Heidegger together with my uh, colleague, Johannes Niederhauser. And basically the whole idea of what I'm doing with my courses is I am basically going out and finding all of the best independent thinkers who usually had one foot in academia in one way or another, but found it to be not to their liking for whatever reason, and who I believe are extremely excellent thinkers, writers, and lecturers who are currently being underpriced and, and, and underappreciated by the current academic market. I'm going around and I'm uh, talking with them and I'm and I'm scooping them up into one organized place where they can do serious, sophisticated online courses. And what's even better about all of this is I'm organizing it in a way so that when you do one of my courses, you get into this larger community with all of the people who have done the other courses. And so you can meet the lecturers and talk with the lecturers, not just from the course you're enrolling in, but from the other courses also, and a bunch of other independent thinkers and bloggers and YouTubers who are doing you know, highbrow philosophy or science work. And yeah, so that's what this is all about. I have recruited Michael into doing another course in my system, and it'll be all about Leo Strauss. It's opening on uh, January 23rd will be the, the start date. But if you signed up for this seminar, then you're on the email list and uh, you'll, you'll get an update soon uh, with more information about that. I don't want to bore the crowd today with too much logistical stuff about how the course is going to work and all that. I'm happy to answer any questions at the end if you have practical or logistical questions about how the, the serious eight-week course will how it will unfold or what that involves starting in January. But uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to bore the crowd with logistical questions. Now I'll take those later or you can email me after uh, I'll be sending you many more updates about that as we get closer to the launch. 
I'm really excited to buy it because I've done many courses now and I know for a fact people love them and uh, they're just very successful all around for, for all parties involved. So that's why I'm really doubling down and bringing in more great people like Michael to do courses. So uh, in, as a kind of preparation for that or a warm up for that, we are today going to be talking all about Leo Strauss and Michael's perspective on Leo Strauss, what Michael finds most interesting or important about Leo Strauss. And we'll learn a little bit more about how Michael has chosen to structure the course. He designed a syllabus uh, that is purely of his own design, and he's already developed most of the lecture content. Almost all of the lecture content uh, is already in my hands, and I'm organizing it and uploading it to the, to the course website. So uh, the course itself is pretty much already developed. Michael has a, a very clear image of what is important and, and valuable about Leo Strauss and how he wants to present that those ideas and create some structured discussion around that each week of the course. So yeah, this is just going to be a kind of early exploration. This is actually the first time I'm talking with Michael face to face. We've done a lot of emailing, but this is our first uh, discussion really. So this will be as interesting and intriguing and, and, and live and open for me as it will be for you. So I'm excited to learn more about Michael's perspective. And I think that's enough by way of introduction from me. And I want to now uh, basically turn it over to Michael. Michael, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to be doing the course with you and to be having this conversation uh, with you and your audience today. Excellent. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on board. Uh, I think it's really going to be awesome. And as I've told you in emails, I think you're a truly excellent thinker and, and writer of the highest caliber who just, you know, like many of us, just doesn't, uh, hasn't, hasn't been able to uh, find themselves at home in the academic systems that I think are increasingly just undesirable really for uh, people like us. And so, yeah, it's, it's I'm, I'm very happy to have you uh, participating in, in, in my ecosystem. And I look forward to hopefully meeting people who come in from, from your ecosystem. So my, Michael, I was thinking a, a good place to start, you know, people probably know a little bit about your story. So I don't even want to go too much into that. I mean, I have a kind of interesting and controversial story. You do too. A lot of us have that in common, but um, I think we should just cut straight, cut to the chase and go straight go straight for the meat of it. Let's start talking about Leo Strauss. If people are interested in Michael's story, it's really quite interesting. Uh, but you can find, you know, like the Jack Murphy podcast is quite good. I, I found that quite interesting. If you want to kind of learn more about uh, Michael's interesting experiences in academia and how he's found himself out on the outside with, with me here today. Uh, he's got a really interesting and quite, quite fascinating story. So I would recommend the Jack Murphy live podcast if you want to learn more about Michael's story. For now, I think we're just going to cut right into it. And Michael, what I want to ask you is... I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you decided to structure the course, uh, because one of the things that I noticed noticed about the syllabus as you laid it out is that the the very first topic, the very first lecture and discussion session is going to be around German post-war philosophy. And people who have maybe heard of Leo Strauss or even maybe read one or two of his books or know some of his big ideas probably won't have a very sophisticated mental model of what the larger scene of German post-war philosophy is or was or why it matters. So I'm curious if you could just tell us briefly, or not even briefly, you take as much time as you want. We have plenty of time. But uh, in your own words, and just for someone who might not have any clue, what is the most interesting kind of general aspect of German post-war philosophy that's, that most people who are interested in Leo Strauss might not understand? So he's addressing, uh, he's addressing a situation where there's a crisis of modern rationality, there's a crisis of thinking concerning guidance for human life. There's a view that um, we're steadily marching towards uh, um, a nihilistic era where you can no longer say that one way of life is better than another way of life and where there's no standard or measure for how man ought to live or how political uh, communities should be ordered and structured. And 
in that situation where there's um, the guidance that's lacking, and like I said, a crisis of modern rationalism, he observed all kinds of movements and schools and tendencies. For example, the restoration of state authority in Carl Schmitt's thought, or the restoration of divine revelation in another um, in another stream of thought, the restoration of uh, of natural law thinking where people who were trying to restore a rational standard turned back to maybe 18th century thought, you know, they turned away from, from Nietzsche and away from some other of these dark sources, vitalistic type sources to try to find some guidance. And Strauss's, Strauss's essay and lecture on those tendencies, I think is so important because we ourselves will be encountering so many of those uh, tendencies in our own time, tendency to turn towards Schmidt, Nietzsche, some other version of modern rationalism. And what Strauss shows is that we don't actually have the resources to think seriously about those problems, but the problems that face us as, uh, as people and again, as political communities, the most important problems, the problems that are life and death in the biggest way and in the most comprehensive sense, we don't have the resources to deal with them unless we can make sense of how we got to where we are in our, his, in our intellectual history in a way, and especially to see on what grounds we can motivate and restore the possibility of philosophy and political philosophy as classically understood. So I wanted it to begin with the, the sort of contemporary analysis, the crisis, not only the main crisis, but the crisis of all of the alternatives as well, none of which is ultimately satisfying. Because when we see that in his thought, when we see it in our own situation, we get a little bit of the, of the motivation that Strauss had to turn back to Plato and say, not only Plato, but Plato primarily, to justify the study of the roots of the tradition of political philosophy in the West. He says that when we try to look at some other resource and we ignore the roots, then we don't really see the problems that have crept into our analysis, which affect both our um, both the solution, the problem as we see it and the solutions that we propose. So um, it's very helpful and it's still so relevant. And I think that's going to be an amazing thing to bring out. And so what is that root of, of classical philosophy? How do you think about that? Okay, well, this is a big question. Okay, but for Strauss, uh, Strauss is, I'll give you like a broad narrative arc on how Strauss sees the development of the history of political philosophy. He says that our crisis, the crisis of the West, the crisis of modern rationalism, um, is related to a deliberate break that was affected by Machiavelli in particular, but a deliberate break from a well-established classical tradition of thinking about the good life. And again, the good life for the human being and the good life for the political community. He calls the classical teaching classical political rationalism or just classical political philosophy. And the deliberate break that Machiavelli made when he openly and um, indecently put morality and religion under the gun of his criticism um, the break that Machiavelli inaugurated in lowering the standard of classical political philosophy from human excellence to, to uh, glory, for example, uh, a tradition that was later modified in, after Machiavelli to the comfortable self-preservation. So Strauss's view is that the classical teaching orients human life and political life by uh, what's best in us. The, what's best in us is our intellectual activity in the contemplation of the highest intelligibles. So ultimately, the standard of human life is the excellence of our nature, the virtues, our flourishing, and spe specifically wisdom. The, the moderns, 
starting with Machiavelli, saw that as too lofty a goal. It's very difficult to try to orient political and human life by what's best, because what's best is rare and therefore not particularly reliable if you're trying to get a strong um, foundation for instituting political orders. So according to Strauss's retelling of this, uh, of this uh, sequence of events, Machiavelli lowered the standard from human excellence, specifically contemplative or theoretical or uh, intellectual excellence, to something lower but more stable and more reliable. And his followers lowered the bar even further so that we get to the teaching that political life is about comfortable self-preservation. And it's about conquering nature in the service of comfortable self-preservation. Whereas the classical teaching had a different interpretation of nature, which saw, again, the goal of life is to perfect human nature. But when nature becomes interpreted as something that is a problem, that is dangerous, that is threatening, that can, uh, that can kill us, or that limits the, um, the possibilities of our acquisition and our comfortable self-preservation, then what happens is you turn against nature as something to get away from. And this sets up a, a variety of dichotomies in the history of philosophy between freedom and nature, uh, between reason and nature. So Strauss believed that this modification of the classical teaching, in some sense, the fulcrum of it was the interpretation of nature, what, it mean, what nature means, and that um, even modern nihilism can't be properly understood, assessed, and diagnosed and responded to without tracing the, the history that moved us from Plato to Machiavelli, ultimately to, um, to the state that we're in now. But you can say, generally speaking, the classical teaching that he wants to restore is a combination. My, my simplest way of putting it, although this leaves, uh, this leaves a lot of things that would have to be elaborated on, is that for Strauss, the classical teaching is a combination of wisdom and moderation that's oriented by man's excellence, but that still makes its peace with the necessities of political life. And that the modern teaching has decoupled wisdom and moderation, has let technology loose from um, moral control, and really is steadily on the way, now to just extrapolate beyond Strauss to some more radical statements of this, to like a post-human universal tyranny where human nature is going to be replaced by artificial intelligence, the singularity, and the total destruction of everything meaningful in human life. That's the extrapolation of these tendencies. And so everything is at stake. Um, everything is at stake in these problems. And Strauss thinks we can do no better at first than to return again, to the roots of the classical tradition. Let me just add, we don't understand the modern alternative, Strauss says, if we don't understand what it broke from. And therefore, it's not that we are defending Plato when we try to understand Plato well and try to figure out all of the ways in which we don't understand him properly. We actually can't get the full significance of modern political thought without absolute clarity on what it broke from, on why it broke from it, and, uh, and all of that. I didn't see the Q&A there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just typing this some people in the chat. So it sounds like the, so the second week of the course is essentially about nihilism. And if I'm understanding you correctly, is it fair to say that in the Straussian worldview, this kind of progressive degeneration from, from classical philosophy through Machiavelli down to our day, that, that, that progressive degeneration produces nihilism as a kind of result or a consequence? Is that fair to um, say? Or... That's, yeah, that's part, that's part of it. So somehow on the, if you, if you pull on the theoretical thread there, it takes you from the Machiavelli's break from the uh, break with the classics down to nihilism. But there's another component to what Strauss says in his, in his uh, nihilism essay that I think is so important, especially for um, the young 
academics or quasi-academics who may be watching this, who may be in university or grad school or, or somehow um, related to all of that, because what Strauss says in that nihilism essay is that, um, is that the young Germans who opposed Weimar liberalism and, in other words, they, who opposed uh, German post-war liberalism and who opposed the communist vision of rejecting bourgeois consumerism and the rights of man for a, um, you know, for a classless uh, and ultimately stateless society, Strauss says there were young Germans who were disgusted by both of those prospects. They absolutely rejected liberalism outright because they felt that it emptied human life of all genuine depth, seriousness, and significance. And for similar reasons, they thought the communist or left alternative was uh, the worst nightmare. Okay, the worst nightmare. So the problem, though, that he assesses is this, that um, he asks, really, can we do a proper assessment of the underlying moral motivation of the young German nihilists who rejected liberalism and communism? Because what he ultimately says is they didn't have a positive program to suggest, but there's a lot of significance in their rejection of the liberal and left alternatives. And the reason that the academic side of the question is so important here is because he says that they had, they had professors, um, progressive professors, who completely failed to understand the positive significance of their moral revolt against liberalism and leftism, and who therefore pushed them further into what I will call right-wing anti-liberalism, radical right-wing anti-liberalism, without providing them any guidance, without giving them any, uh, throwing them any bone, so to speak, right? With no acknowledgement of the positive moral significance of their protest against the status quo and against the communist uh, dream or nightmare as you see it. And so he says what they needed, Strauss puts all the blame on the teachers, all the blame on the professors. And he says that what they needed um, were old-fashioned teachers who could understand and speak to and address and guide the moral protest that they had, which he, which he actually treats, I mean, he himself is such an old-fashioned teacher, that's why he's so important, but it's impossible for me, and I think for so many other um, people who, who will look at that in the course and just maybe as a result of our conversation now, it's impossible to read that and not to see 2020, where people are getting pushed onto the margins of, uh, of um, you know, the black, the intellectual black market, because there's no old fashioned professor who can understand what is legitimate in hating, or at least in somehow being disgusted by the prevailing political and moral alternatives. So Strauss here is absolute, um, he's a maestro when it comes to understanding the moral inclinations of his students, because he understands the human soul in a way that today's professors will never do. And, uh, and they are just taking the hands and heads and sticking them under the sand further and further, their own heads and the heads of their students. And uh, Strauss is absolutely not like that. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating. That's so incredibly specifically relevant for today. So it's basically as if the types of professors that Strauss was emphasizing would be very necessary to prevent the worst of the worst from happening in that kind of uh, nihilistic German context are precisely the kinds of professors that you're like literally not allowed to be today. A hundred percent. Those are the professors who are getting kicked out of academia. And they, either they get sidelined when they're, if they're already in, in their tenure, they'll be, their office will be somewhere in the basement. Or if they're on their way into the system, that'll be nipped at the bud before it has a chance to blossom into anything meaningful. And, uh, and it's absolutely the case that those professors are being choked out of, out of academia. And it's fascinating. It actually, it actually exacerbates the problem that they say they're concerned with. 
they totally lack, these professors totally lack an understanding of genuine moral, political, and philosophical education. And Strauss, by contrast, is like I said, the maestro when it comes to that. And I think he's super relevant there, um, not to mention all the other places where his voice is so uh, on the mark. Fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think it's so true because you see nowadays, it's like if you're in university as a student or even in grad school as a student, and you just generally don't feel at home in the contemporary political context, it's like because you don't have attractive, strong uh, role models within the institutions to talk with and to be mentored by, to channel your, your, your feelings and your, your, your critical stance in an in a intellectually sophisticated and productive line, then you end up like finding the only intellectual solace you can find on like random like Discord servers and like often sometimes quite sketchy um, and rather dumb and often quite nasty sometimes uh, internet crevices. And so it's it's so interesting because it sounds like what what Strauss essentially diagnosed is in fact coming coming to fruition today. We don't have those types of professors, and so people are finding their their alternative intellectual nourishment in sometimes very very unsalutary places. And and it's one of my missions with these courses to essentially install a uh, more sophisticated, genuine, uh, purposeful, and effortful you know a, a agglomeration of 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 PhDs and, and writers and thinkers, I don't care about credentials, but just people who are doing serious work trying to figure this stuff out so that there are places for people who feel similarly kind of adrift to find some structure and find some, find some people they can trust and find some people that they can get some mentorship and some, some guidance from. It's a great opportunity for you. The Soviet Union early in their, um, early in their history, they sent the philosophers out on the ship of fools. You know, everybody who could be a problem for the Soviet regime, all the great thinkers who became amazing, um, you know, ex- exiled intellectual. And in some sense, the universities are sending out a lot of people on a ship of fools now too, just banishing them from the institutions. And you can welcome them with, uh, with open arms and really capture that, uh, that brain drain. I don't want to include myself in this, but I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, that's yeah. as a matter oh, of no. fact, that's what's happening. But, the, but there are other people who are being sidelined, as you know. And, uh, yeah. and once you catch the logic of it, as you've done, then you take advantage of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very one exciting. Other thing, I, I feel one other thing by Leo Strauss. Absolutely. One other thing I just want to say about, about uh, that German nihilism essay, which is great, which concerns, you know, the students and the professors. Uh, he writes that these pro- progressive, and but he doesn't mean, he just means professors who had no sensitivity to the genuine uh, underlying dimension of the students' protest. Like they didn't even care to understand. They didn't even, they didn't even entertain the thought that there might be something worth criticizing. Worth gen- fundam- there might be something fundamental worth criticizing in the status quo. They didn't see any of that. What he says is that when these professors responded to the students with their, as it were, like platitudes, you know, about, about the liber- open society and liberalism, this, it just confirmed the students in their beliefs that these professors were totally clueless as concerns the most important question, you know, and I know there are a lot of students. I, when I was a TA, I had students come to me and give me a very similar type of, uh, type of account, you know, that they went and talked to some professor and they were, the student was confirmed in their suspicion that these professors are clueless. Not all of them. There are some good people, but, uh, you know, but, but it's still a big problem. Yeah, for sure. So the third week of the Strauss course, as you've designed it, will be on reason and revelation. This is one of Strauss's perhaps most well-known distinctions. It's one of the one of the couple of ideas he's perhaps best well-known for is this distinction between reason and revelation. And so I think it'd be nice to talk a little bit about this because it's quite interesting. And the first question that comes to my mind is that you described through Strauss's perspective a kind of 
progressive degeneration from classical philosophy to today and that, that leads us to the kind of nihilistic situation that we face in modern culture today. I wonder, you also see over the long term a progressive secularization of, of Western culture, you could argue. Are those linked? Are those, are those two long-term trends linked? Or how would you think about the, 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 the trend of uh, secularization where today revelation is there's hardly anything more alien to modern consciousness than, than the significance of revelation? So how do you think about that? Well, for, for Strauss, one of, the, one of the key things that happened in the shift from the classical to the modern modes of thinking or classical to the modern teaching was that revelation was supposedly refuted. Now, this becomes a key, a crucial topic for Strauss because what he, what he was involved in doing in some sense from an early, early in his intellectual career was reawakening the prejudice in favor of the possibility of revelation by assessing the supposed refutation of the possibility of revelation. So what he says is that we've inherited a tradition that we now treat unthinkingly, according to which revelation is in principle impossible. For Strauss, Spinoza is the person who at the peak made developed this argument by trying to show that miracles are impossible. He tried to refute revelation. We go into some of that in the lecture and Strauss has treated Spinoza in detail. He was one of the first thinkers that Strauss wrote about um, at great length, Spinoza and Hobbes. So when you bring the question of revelation back up to the surface, building from the actual basic, what's presupposed by the view that there cannot be revelation? And is that, has that actually been established in the way that we take for granted unthinkingly? That's actually the question that Strauss raises. So he tries to restate as forcefully as he can the arguments against the possibility of revelation. And what he finds is that they are not decisive. He concludes in one of his essays that the possibility of revelation wasn't so much refuted as it was mocked, laughed, and scorned out of relevance. But we thinking beings can't be satisfied with refutation by scorn, mockery, and laughter. We actually need the argumentation and the demonstrations. So Strauss restores the possibility of revelation to a place of dignity. And it's one of the reasons why among his followers and students, there are some prominent Catholic thinkers, there are some prominent Jewish thinkers, and in short, there are some prominent religious figures because Strauss uh, reestablished the nobility of a revelation tradition by showing it had never properly been refuted. Let me say more on more along the lines of what you asked, though, he does think that if you play that out, the removing revelation, that's not some sense on the, on the scientific or philosophical level. You say the possibility of revelation is out of the picture. And you also begin to minimize the importance of religion for public morality. Well, for Strauss, that combination is disastrous. It's, a, it's, um, it's definitely a ticking time bomb. It, it can only culminate in some very bad uh, some very bad political circumstances. And somehow we need to do the theoretical work of restoring the possibility of revelation and the political philosophical work of seeing the importance of religious morality and religious law and the gods for the political community. And uh, this is an old problem, as I'm sure some of your listeners know, in philosophy, because Socrates was accused of not believing in the gods of the city, of introducing new gods, of not necessarily being pious. And some of Socrates' foremost, I mean, Socrates was sentenced for that, among other things, and uh, killed. Some of Socrates' most prominent defenders tried to show that he, he was pious, that he did not empty the city of, uh, of divine 
presence and that kind of thing did not undermine the gods. So this relationship between moderate wisdom as crucial for the political community and the scorning of revelation and emptying out of morality from the public domain, religious morality from the public domain. Those two things are absolutely crucial for Strauss. And I want to add one more, uh, one more component to this picture, which is that if you play secularization out and you go into some of the postmodern tendencies, there is, like Dugan, Alexander Dugan writes in The Fourth Political Theory, a return of archaics and a return of myth, a return of the gods. There was something similar in Heidegger who talks about the gods, although it's a big story about how to interpret that properly. And what Strauss would say is that return of talk of the gods is not necessarily a solution to the problem of secularization and nihilism, because these are, these are um, the gods of post-modernity. You see, they're, they're the gods who have already lived through the dark night of modernity and who are somehow just coming back like nature that's been expelled with, uh, with a pitchfork. They're coming back with a vengeance in a way. Whereas what we need is a, a, a sober thinking about philosophy and revelation as two fundamental ways of life and as two potential sources of guidance for the political community. So he, uh, he did not think that Heidegger's restoration of the talk of the gods, and he would not probably think um, that other, other contemporary thinkers' restoration of talk of the gods is necessarily good just because it's not secular. We have to do this at, uh, to do a different spatial metaphor in the highest possible way and at the deepest possible foundation. We don't just want to be positing, uh, positing gods or being overly... Um, Right. Mad. Right. So was he religious himself? Did, did, did he have revelatory experiences or do you know? Or? So I would, put it, uh, I would put it this way. Strauss is a, uh, as I like to characterize him, a, philo- a philosophical supremacist. Okay. So Strauss comes down on the side of philosophy. And if he had a conversion experience, because he spoke about philosophy as in terms of conversion from time to time, then his was a conversion to the life of philosophy. And, uh, and that required a sensible and respectful um, departure from his religious tradition. He grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. And when he, uh, when he spoke about political philosophy in Jerusalem in the essay called What is Political Philosophy, which we look at in the course, his opening remarks say that as he, as he presents um, what political philosophy is, he says, I will compel myself to turn away from or not to address you know, the biblical tradition that is more properly rooted in Jerusalem where he was speaking. So if you have to say, where did he come down, Athens or Jerusalem, philosophy or revelation, I think it's fair to say he came down on the philosophy side of things. It's another question to what extent that for him was a, uh, philosophy is not a religious revelation, but it is like an all soul conversion experience. Hmm. Philosophy is not just something you do when you're not gardening and, you know, for Strauss. It's not just something you happen to do it's one of your hobbies, like uh, among 10 other things. It's the decisive fact of a person's life. The question, who is a philosopher? What is philosophy? And even is philosophy possible is all consuming for Strauss. But he comes down on the philosophical side of that. Uh, I, should say, I should say, though, um, just, I want to add just one thing briefly. What Strauss said is that ultimately, every thinking person who thinks these matters through to the end has to be either on the side of philosophy or on the side of revelation. And if they take the side of philosophy, they have to give the most, he wouldn't say charitable, but they have to give every possible 
the strongest possible understanding of revelation that they can muster up and vice versa. If you belong to the biblical tradition or to some other tradition of revelation, you have to see philosophy as the most serious alternative to your own way of life and give it the most uh, robust or charitable reading and understanding that you possibly can. For him, those were the two key ways of ways of life facing, uh, facing all of us ultimately. All right. Excellent. That, that was, that was perfect. Now, probably the most well-known idea associated with Leo Strauss, probably the idea that I would say dominates his public perception is this idea of, of persecution and the art of writing. I would say if you, if you at a cocktail party happen to encounter someone who knows a thing or two about Strauss or pretends to, uh, this is going to be what they're going to say to you. Something more or less like, oh yeah, he believed that philosophers have to, and, and statesmen have to encode their thoughts in esoteric language so that the, the dumb masses can't figure it out and uh, they're not going to get persecuted. Would you like to speak to this? Or what does the, what does the kind of quotidian uh, popular image of, of Straussian uh, esotericism, what, is the, what does the popular image get wrong? Or how would you characterize it in your own view? So, um, so there are a couple of things that I don't think the popular image really gets, uh, gets right. So one of the things is that, um, first of all, the whole question of persecution is not just that philosophers have to lie to the dumb masses. In fact, that's not, not, not at all the way that I think is, is uh, best for us to phrase it. So let me give you a couple of different at, uh, approaches to it. First of all, why he thought it was important to acknowledge that philosophers sometimes write between the lines is this. He said, if we look back at the history of political philosophy, we may be left with the impression that authors are sons of their time, that they share the reigning prejudices of their time and place. So if you read Plato, he says something about Zeus. And if you read somebody else, he says something about whatever happens to be the reigning prejudice of his time. And therefore, you could want to conclude that all philosophers are culturally circumscribed by their immediate um, context in this way, right? You can understand Plato by understanding him as a function of ancient Greece because you can see it reflected in what he writes. But what Plato, what, uh, what Socrates, <laughs> what Strauss, I get these three, for me, they're three, the three are one. What Strauss said is that if authors wrote between the lines and they just paid lip service to the prevailing opinions on the surface of their works, then the conclusion wouldn't follow that everybody is just a product of their time. Because if there was a common thread from time to time to time, from author to author to author, but this common thread was not on the surface, but somewhere beneath the level of lip service, then what you'd have to say is that there's a constant concern among the philosophers that is not circumscribed by their cultural context. So the view that all thought is uh, circumscribed by its cultural context, he calls historicism. And he says this, this view that all thought is historical is an obstacle to the possibility of philosophy as classically understood and is also an obstacle to giving us a standard of political judgment that'll keep us sane and sound in politics. Because he says, when you reject the possibility of a rational standard, a trans-historical rational standard, you're left with just accepting dispensations of fate without being able to judge them as to their merit. So he, it was very important for him, both politically and theoretically, to establish that there's a trans-historical interest among political philosophers. But he could only do that by showing that they wrote between the lines. So that's something that is not understood in the common knowledge about, about his you know, persecution thesis, that the vital significance of his discovery or of his, of its, of his insight. You know, that's separate from the question as to why 
they wrote that way, but it's still absolutely fundamental for him in justifying the possibility of a sound, rational politic. Okay, now that's quite interesting because it basically sounds like what you're saying is that his conception of writing between the lines, the way you're describing it, it's not so sinister as people often kind of think. I think when people think of reading of, of writing between the lines, they imagine a philosopher has some kind of uh, dangerous message and then they're like consciously trying to write their words in a way that hides that dangerous message. But it sounds like more like what you're really saying is that the true philosopher tries to think in this transhistorical way, but at any given time and place, the popular expectations are to modulate for kind of historical circumstances. So the philosopher is just he who does not modulate true thought to historical circumstances, which requires something like what we call writing between the lines. But it doesn't sound so sinister as you're describing it. How, how would you... How would you speak? Yeah, so I think the impression that Strauss's um, rediscovery of esoteric writing or promotion of esoteric writing is sinister is linked to the Iraq war and the the, the premises of going into Iraq, you know, that they have weapons of mass destruction. They must have lied about it for the sake of oil. So I think that when Strauss was linked to neoconservatism, neoconservatism linked to the Iraq war, the thought was that, oh, the lies that that were made concerning the Iraq war were a function of Strauss's teaching that it's good for the elites to lie to the masses. That's a total distortion of, of, his, actual, uh, of his actual teaching about these things. So I want to just say something that's very important about how Strauss himself understood the political philosopher who writes between the lines. He calls that way of writing Socratic rhetoric in one context, in a book that we'll actually be looking at a little bit. Is, it's called On Tyranny. He calls it Socratic rhetoric. And it has a few functions, but one of the things that he says about Socratic rhetoric is that it's perfectly just, harmless, and animated by a spirit of social responsibility. The reason that the philosopher does not want to put everything out there on the surface of his writing is not because he's getting his minions to go get some oil money from the Middle East or any other version of that argument. It's because he wants to preserve the basic requirements of social and political cohesion in the best possible way that he can do. And if there's a tension between the requirements of theory, philosophy, or science on one hand, and the requirements of law, politics, and morality on the other, and for all we know, there might be, if there is such a tension, then it could be unjust for the philosopher to just uh, dissolve politics in the acid of theory. You know, and uh, and what Strauss sees on the basis of his understanding of Socratic rhetoric, as he found it in Plato and not only there, but in also other contemporaries like Xenophon, as well as in the whole tradition of Platonic political philosophy, is that the philosopher um, has to be socially responsible and preserve the conditions of political community. One other thing, Strauss actually said there are three reasons why a philosopher would write between the lines. Number one, to protect philosophy from persecution. Okay, because if the philosopher says some things openly that non-philosophers don't like, well, we have a history of what happens under those circumstances, uh, past and present. So to protect philosophy from the city. Number two, to protect the city or the political community from philosophy. Because again, it may have a corrosive effect on the fundamentals that keep the community together. And number three, this is a very important one for Strauss, since as I mentioned to you, he's the maestro when it comes to education. A philosopher who writes between the lines can seduce or bring out the potential philosophers who are reading that work. Because the non-potential philosophers, they won't pick up on the hints, they won't be interested in them, they won't necessarily give them the care and the attention that they deserve. 
But if, if in composing a text, the philosopher leaves little breadcrumbs, so to speak, he can ensure through his writing that the right kind of reader from a pedagogical perspective, not a political one, from a philosophical perspective, not a, uh, not a military one, that the potential philosophers will, be, will catch that little glimpse of what he left between the lines and want to see the rest of it. You know? And therefore, the philosopher is uh, writing between the lines in order to educate potential philosophers. So none of, that has the, none of that has the aura of the sinister popular view. And yet I think it's much truer to Strauss and to the tradition that he addressed. I see. Yeah. So you said to save the philosopher from the city and to save the city from philosophy and then to better pull in and educate potential philosophers who are not yet philosophers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And he has some accounts here and there about why, if, why a philosopher should care about winning over potential philosophers. And, um, you know, he says a philosopher can't help but love a well-ordered soul uh, when he sees one. So there's a, there's, a lot, uh, there's a lot more to say about that. But I think that uh, we can't really answer what Strauss thinks about um, esoteric writing without at least those three things. That's fascinating. So th- that's a very uh, nice and concise, but also sophisticated rendering of that. So thank you for that. Now, do you have a sense, Michael, or an intuition of how one might apply this today? Because this is something I think a lot of people naturally do, right? When they hear about Strauss or they read a little bit about Strauss, uh, maybe they read Peter Thiel's essay on, on the Straussian moment. The, the pedestrian takeaway is often ah, well, this rings true for us today. If you speak certain dangerous truths, you can, you know, get your head chopped off. So what this means is we need to all use obscure language to uh, hide what we really think. And I have a personal sense, I would love to hear what you think, but I have a personal sense that this kind of pseudo-Straussian, or not necessarily pseudo-Straussian, but just kind of pedestrian uh, Straussian idea is often used incorrectly and, and often, I think, in a cowardly way where people basically want to use this. They want to invoke Strauss to basically uh, feel sophisticated and smart for never really saying what they really think uh, for, for never really writing courageously about anything. Ah, Strauss, Strauss is the justification for this. You know what I'm saying? How do you speak to that? Or how do you translate the Straussian insights to the contemporary moment for, you know, radical thinkers or writers? I would say that the main takeaway would not be we ourselves need to write between the lines, but rather we need to orient ourselves toward the possibility of philosophy. That's a precondition. You don't just start writing between the lines because you're, you're worried that your boss isn't going to like what you say. Uh, in, Strauss, in Strauss's view, everything depends on whether or not we're motivated by the problems as we, as we see them and the problems as he helps bring out for us that we actually, we've, we've lost our points of orientation. And wherever we think we get one, if we look a little bit more closely, we'll see that it's somehow free-floating. We have to bring to light, well, well before the thought of writing between the lines would ever cross our minds, the, the crisis situation that we face as human beings concerning the good life, the right way of, to live, and the, yeah, the options available to us as, as human beings. So Strauss would say, I, I think, to me, the takeaway message for Strauss, the big, the big one is, education, education, education. But what education means for him is reacquainting ourselves with the fundamental questions, the fundamental trans-historical questions facing the human being, and the range of potential answers to those questions. Without that, I mean, if somebody became a master of anonymity, okay, if someone was very good at their op sec, I guess is the term, right? Operational security or whatever the case is, but had no inkling 
of the fundamental questions concerning uh, the good political community or the good life, and no conception of the wasn't able to state the alternatives of, as strongly as possible, there would be nothing Straussian about that. Whereas if someone could tell you the fundamental problems and had no OPSEC, that would be much, much closer to what Strauss wants to convey to us. I see. Right. So the Straussian idea of writing between the lines only really comes into play for you if you're doing really hard work of uh, pursuing the truth in a very steady, painstaking, patient way, doing proper philosophy. It's only, it's only at a certain point does one have to measure one's words for these reasons. But short of a serious philosophical research project, uh, any, any, any invocation of you know, Straussian esotericism to justify your, your cowardliness is probably not appropriate. Is that fair? Yeah, look, he, do, he doesn't think we should be tactless or indecent or brazen, you know, or all of those kinds of things. But that's really different from writing esoterically in the specific ways that he mentioned, you know, because one is just a matter of common, common decency, basic morality and a good upbringing or whatever the case is, you know, reading the air and being respectful of, uh, of the situation. Whereas another belongs to the problem of the relationship between philosophy and politics. And we, I would say that Strauss, Strauss would say, we shouldn't be so presumptuous uh, as to think that we have exited the cave and received illumination and are now back in the, in, you know, back in the cave and therefore have the obligation of, no, you know, our, our task is just to understand that we're still shackled, you know, or as he, as he put it and when he assessed, um, when he assessed where we've come in the modern political and moral development, he said, so I assume that the people who are listening to this are roughly familiar with the image of the cave in Plato's Republic, where we're all chained, we see the shadows and all that. But what Strauss said is that tech, technological society is a cave beneath the cave. And that in fact, we have to exert a great effort just to get back to the condition of natural ignorance, which makes genuine philosophical education possible. So if we believe that we've exited the cave and are in the light and therefore have a reason to be writing esoterically, we more likely are still in the cave beneath the cave and probably digging down, you know, to like uh, to the molten uh, core of the earth or something like that. So the whole, that's why I said the emphasis is really on education and not on OPSEC. Although you should still be tactful and decent and respectful. That's really lovely what you just said. And it reminds me of a Heideggerian reading also of the cave, which I know a lot about nowadays from my, my colleague Johannes, who teaches Heidegger in, in my courses. What, he, what, Heide, what Johannes always says is that, you know, even if you get out of the cave, really you, you choose to go back into the cave out of a kind of compassion. And that, I think, jives very well with what you're saying about compassion. It's like, even if, even if you think you have penetrated to some kind of, uh, great dangerous uh, illumination. You know, you shouldn't be thinking of yourself as, you know, having some 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 secret elite insights that you need to write between the lines for necessarily, but more like you should be thinking, how can you live charitably and lovingly and compassionately with all of the people around you who might not have, you know, the the, the privilege of of whatever illumination you may or may not have been blessed with. And I think that puts you in a much more educational or pedagogical state of mind. So I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a part of it. I just want to add that for, for Strauss, even when, and maybe especially when, we have doubts about the nature of our philosophical progress. In other words, when we're not convinced that we have uh, stumbled upon or discovered the truth, the final truth of things, because we have the Socratic knowledge that we don't know, we know that we don't know the most important things. And we know that it's the most important for us to try to seek them. That makes us gentle. 
You know, the, the, it reduces the, the, it reduces the um, zealotry of dogmatism in a way. And the philosopher, not just because he has possessed illumination and therefore is um, kind and compassionate, that's one option, but Strauss more often talks about the fact that in his quest for illumination, in his knowledge that he doesn't know and doesn't possess it, the philosopher becomes mild and, and uh, beneficent, um, not to all humanity, but to the friend's that he talks to about what he's discovered and what he hasn't discovered. And he becomes, um, uh, yeah, mild and, and, ben- and beneficent. So that's his model. It's less that he possesses illumination than it is that he gets that wisdom is an ongoing quest. But you see the problem for the, the where the esoteric writing comes in, if you think that philosophy is a quest for wisdom rather than the possession of wisdom, it's still the case that... Um, the quest for wisdom is motivated by doubt about the answers that we have entertained, right? Because we have to call into question the answers that, we're, that we stopped at so we can keep, keep the inquiry going. But politics, he seems to think, the political order, the constituted political order rests on a foundation that if you call it into question, you sort of um, put in some danger. Now, it's not that you can't question it at all, but you have to find the right balance or the right extent to which you can question it. So in, in other words, you don't write between the lines just to conceal your secret doctrine because Socratic philosophy, as Strauss understands it, doesn't possess a secret doctrine. All it possesses is the open quest for wisdom in the knowledge that we don't possess it. And yet even there, it comes with the social responsibility of not wanting to corrode the opinions that keep a community together. Excellent. Excellent. Very well put. So we're coming up on an hour. I don't want to keep Michael too long and we do have some good questions here. So I think now is probably a good time to switch over to, to take some questions from the crowd. So there's still time if you want to squeeze one in, but I'm going to start with the ones that we already have. So uh, it's basically a combination of, of questions about the course and questions about Strauss. So uh, we'll, we'll just kind of do them all. So one question here from Lou. Uh, Lou asks, Michael, your course will be on Leo Strauss, but I also see your most recent book is on Heidegger. Uh, labels are lame, but for brevity's sake, do you feel more like a Heideggerian or a Straussian to the degree that you see them as distinct? Well, that's a, I can tell you that for me, Strauss and Heidegger represent the two most serious alternatives in thinking about political philosophy. So for me, it's a, a real battle of the giants between the two of them. And on strictly, um, strictly philosophical terms, I find myself more attracted to Heidegger. And on political philosophical terms, or when it comes to, you know, it's, it's still a battle of the giants for me. But I can tell you, if I had to, uh, you know, I named my first son Leo, I didn't name him Martin. So that tells you, and uh, I'll never name one of us Martin, no disrespect to the name. So they're two, they're two absolute giants for me. And uh, the motivation in some sense of that book and of my own existence is to try to um, stage that battle of the giants as best as I can, and see everything that's at, at stake. Uh, I, I adore Strauss in a way that I will never adore Heidegger. And, um, and I, I would probably be more comfortable seeing myself as and being regarded as a Straussian than a Heideggerian. But like I said, it's a battle of the giants for me. Well put. I, I like your answer. That's interesting. There's a question here from Ryan McGrath. What's up, Ryan? Ryan asks, for the upcoming course, how much previous experience with Leo Strauss will I need to be ready? Is this course appropriate for beginners? I've read three essays by Strauss thus far. So I'll take this one. And what I say to this question, which I get asked a lot about all my courses, is the following. I structure all of my courses and I structure the community and the discussion sessions in such a way that anyone who is interested in reading and thinking and putting in the work of reading and thinking is 
more than welcome to join the course and more than able to get a lot out of the course. And we try to design things in a way where if you're super advanced, maybe you're in a graduate degree program or maybe you've just read a ton of Strauss or whatever. Uh, we have people from all different walks of life, all different levels of experience. We've had people take courses who have already written multiple books. Uh, some people are maybe in an undergraduate program. Some people have literally never read anything of the author that we're studying in the given course. We try to arrange things in such a way that if you're totally fresh, totally green, there's a lot of relatively accessible text to get started. And the conversations in the discussion sessions are usually at a normal conversational kind of tone and level, like the one we're having right now, essentially. The, the tone and the, the level of the little discussion I'm having here with Michael would be the kind of tone and level that uh, everyone in the discussion sessions would interact on. And so it's very, it's very, uh, very friendly, very uh, kind of accessible in that regard. But we also try to make it so that if you are more advanced and you already know a ton about Strauss, then we have other options and other uh, kind of support systems for people who are interested in doing more ambitious work. So br uh, uh, briefly or roughly, what I would say is that um, we generally do two tiers or two tracks. In the discussion sessions, everyone is there and everyone gets along and it's just educated, thoughtful people at different levels having interesting and fruitful conversations. But for those who are really more advanced, who maybe have read a ton of Strauss and they're really more ambitious about doing their own work, we have a separate track um, which usually costs a good bit more because it involves kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, discussions and, and reading your work and giving some feedback. So I'll tell you more about the details later. If, as long as you're signed up to the email list, uh, I'll, I'll explain all this in detail. But that's basically what we do. The, the shared common spaces, the community, and, this, and the seminar sessions are very open and accessible, uh, advanced and beginner, get along just fine, and it's quite productive and often quite useful. What I often tell people is, you know, if you think that you're a serious kind of Strauss expert, maybe you've even published peer-reviewed work on Strauss or something like that, uh, chances are uh, it's been a long time since you've actually talked to someone about it. Um, even if you're a professor, you know, sometimes uh, you spend most of your time as a professor, you know, doing kind of tedious work. You don't actually get that much time to talk with uh, a diverse set of just interested people about these ideas. And so even if you think you're super sophisticated, you might find that actually having an open, honest conversation with a diverse group of educated, thoughtful people um, challenges you to actually find a way of speaking about these things in a more natural tone, in a, more, in, in a language that is more your own, that even professionals sometimes don't have much experience with. So yeah, we find that in the discussion seminars, uh, it's usually a, a wide diversity of, of experience and, and background and, and talent and uh, it gets on just fine. The people that are fresh are just kind of super stimulated and intrigued and they learn quickly because there's often, you know, definitely a critical mass of pretty educated, uh, you know, slight, somewhat well-read people. And then there's always a small minority of people who are kind of super expert on the topic and they have fun kind of teaching the others and kind of using, you know, uh, explaining things in their own words, in their own language in a way that they don't usually get to within the whatever institutional context that they're in. So that's, that's my, my long answer. The short answer is uh, all levels, uh, get along quite well in the course and find some value of it. We have two different tiers, uh, depending on what your interests are. If you want to do a, a serious project, um, like you want to write a book about Strauss, or you want to uh, write a peer-reviewed journal article, or you just want to build a blog maybe about political philosophy, but you are interested in a Straussian perspective, uh, we have a separate track for those types of people where we give you personal support and kind of uh, mentoring uh, more, more, more with more focus. But that's not for everyone, for sure. All right, so that's my answer to that. Um, Joshua, Joshua has a question here. Uh, this one's from Michael. It says, once on Twitter, you noted that Strauss destroyed Karl Popper, Karl Popper on the Open Society. Uh, wondering which text by Strauss is best on this and if you'd be willing to make some broad gestures in that direction. Many thanks from Joshua. Which text is his best? I, right on the spot, 
what is political philosophy, something that we cover together, probably of, of the ones that we're reading together would be most relevant. And uh, you can see in some thing that I haven't assigned, private correspondence of Strauss, uh, where he rips into Popper. But the key, um, the key thing is this, he, he's critical of not just Popper, but of a whole tradition of interpretation of Plato, which is very poor in its understanding, does not get at the key question and is extremely biased in favor of liberalism at the outset. Because if you're extremely biased in favor of liberalism at the outset, you're going to see people like Plato, or let me put it this way, anybody who talks about metaphysics or ontology or essence or nature and those kinds of things as a fascist, as a proto-fascist or crypto-fascist or neo-fascist. Because if you're defending openness, then you... um you're really concerned with anything that is hierarchical, potentially hierarchical or exclusive or closed. Now, Strauss's view is that the classical political teaching, which is um, better than the modern one on this point, is that it belongs to the nature of political things, that they rest on a, on a closed horizon or limited horizon, that politics is the realm of opinion and not knowledge, and that um, Popper misunderstood that and mischaracterized Plato just top to bottom. So his terms of analysis are wrong. His interpretation is wrong. His reading is wrong. His access to Plato is completely off. And it's almost like a self-parody of, um, of liberal zealotry, the way that Popper understood, quote unquote, understood Plato. And so I, should, I, I just want to make one, one point here. Um, it's not trivial. The question of understanding Plato or understanding the classics, it's not like um, for Strauss, you know, you can just pull... You know, just it's some something easy like we must have understood him because so many you know thousands of years have passed of, of Plato interpretation. In fact, Strauss's students. This is an important point to to, um, to understand. Strauss's students retranslated the Platonic texts, like the Republic was translated by Alan Bloom, the Laws was translated by Thomas Pangle, and the reason is that the existing translations were were treating the original texts as though they were something already understood. They were over-interpreting them. They were not being consistent in the translation of terms. In other words, the translator put himself above Plato, where he can decide what gets, what gets into the translation, what gets out, what gets paraphrased. And what Strauss said is that only the greatest fidelity to and attention to the original text that will actually give us some access to what Plato actually um, thought and taught. And Popper and his like they just made that education impossible in, uh, in their access to, the, to Plato. So what is political philosophy gives you some counterpoint to the, to the open society. But there, there are other texts. It's really all built into Strauss's whole, uh, all of his work. All right. That was, that was a brutal takedown of Popper, man. Uh, I'm, just trying to stay, I'm just trying to stay Strauss's position as best I can. No, no, so it's, it's, like, it's, it's good. It's powerful. Uh, okay. All right. We got a question from Mark, which is, Based upon my incredibly superficial understanding of political philosophy, Leo Strauss still fits into the liberal paradigm. His call to return to the classics, while laudable, while remaining committed to liberalism, such as Mill, has been critiqued as at root nihilistic and proto-totalitarian. And he cites here Maurice Cowling and Legutko, or even Strauss's own speech on nihilism. Okay, with all due respect to those people, it's an incompetent take on Strauss. Okay, but now I have to say more, more nicely. Okay, now I have to say more nicely. So about Strauss belonging to the liberal paradigm, here's what I want to say. Some of you may know Carl Schmitt. 
concept of the political, political theology, famous Nazi jurist and political thinker, Carl Schmitt. Well, in the concept of the political, um, if you buy the expanded edition today on Amazon, you'll see that it comes, or, or wherever you buy your books, you'll see that it comes together with Strauss's notes on the concept of the political. Strauss wrote a response to Schmidt, and Schmidt, the Nazi anti-liberal, said that nobody had understood him as well as Strauss, that Strauss saw through him like an x-ray. And what Strauss said in his notes to the concept of the political is that Schmidt himself is still too liberal, that Schmidt has not overcome the horizon of liberalism, and that only a study of Hobbes and getting beyond Hobbes, back to the classics, will be a genuine overcoming of liberalism. So not only is it unfair, I think, to say about Strauss that he falls within the liberal paradigm, Strauss actually rebuked what you might say is like the best known right-wing anti-liberal for not getting past the liberal paradigm, and then wrote many, many books on doing what he said Schmidt did not accomplish. In other words, on bringing to light the foundations of liberalism in Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Spinoza, in showing that all of their presuppositions were somehow misguided, and in restoring the possibility of a classical teaching. So it's, uh, let me give you another reference point here. This is a text that we're not going to be discussing in the, as for the syllabus, you know, but you should definitely look at it when it comes to this claim that Strauss, this is from liberalism, ancient and modern. And uh, if you say that Strauss falls into the liberal paradigm, we have to at least distinguish between ancient and modern liberalism. And if you read this, I mean, there's a collection of essays here, all of which are good, but there's one in particular that I want to just bring up on this point, which is called the liberalism of classical political philosophy. And uh, if you read that essay together with the remarks I made here, you'll see why you can't say Strauss falls into the liberal paradigm. As, as for nihilism, I was reading just before our call uh, right here, Natural Right and History. And when Strauss is talking about, about Max Weber and his view of the fact-value distinction, how it potentially culminates in nihilism, Strauss says about Weber that... Um, he sort of has a noble, you might say that his is a noble nihilism as opposed to some base nihilism. But what he says next is that you cannot distinguish between noble and base nihilism without already having, without already having overcome nihilism. Because when you make the distinction between noble and base, you're now evaluating things in a way that nihilism doesn't want to do. So it's, it's wrong about Strauss that he's not a nihilistic in my, in my view. With, which I think I can defend. And it's wrong about Strauss that he's, uh, he belongs to the liberal paradigm. What Strauss does is combine wisdom and moderation in a way that is respectful to the prevailing social order, constitutional liberal democracy, at the same time as restoring the grandeur of the classical alternative, specifically the possibility of a philosophical life. Excellent answer. You just made me think of a, a somewhat random but related question, which I've always wonder about. I joke about this with people all the time. Carl Schmitt is a hilarious figure in the culture wars today because why has he not been canceled by the left when the left is canceling, you know, Heidegger canceled, Strauss canceled, much more milquetoast uh, philosophers, uh, le much less dangerous philosophers than Schmitt have been canceled. But Schmitt, literally a Nazi jurist, you can cite Schmidt in like posh, fashionable left-wing books, like uh, Agamben's book. On, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to be interested in Schmidt's ideas. How is that? Do you have any theory on, on, on like the, the wormhole that the name Carl Schmidt has entered in the culture wars? How did that happen? Do you have any clue? Yeah, so I would say this. Alan Bloom, in his 80s book, Closing of the American Mind, he discusses the Nietzscheanization of the left. 
And he says that although Nietzsche was not a figure of the left, he's been very well appropriated by the left, by the academic left and by the literary left. And a similar thing happened with Heidegger and his French students. And a similar thing happened with Schmidt, uh, that these are non-liberal, non-leftist thinkers who, in their criticism of liberalism, have become useful for the left and have been creatively reappropriated by the left. And now the minute that these thinkers, um, the minute that the, uh, that the left loses their grasp on Nietzsche, on Schmidt, and on Heidegger, very quickly, dogmatic liberals will rush into the void and try to cancel Schmidt, uh, Heidegger, and Nietzsche for left and right as soon as they begin to shift. And so I actually had a view, this is outside of my area of expertise, but that Nietzsche began to slip out of the hands of the left in 2016. Somehow the Nietzscheanization of the right, you know, the, the pendulum of Nietzsche reading swung back to the right in 2016. Hmm. And uh, with Heidegger, <laughs> um, there was a book written uh, you know, not too long ago saying that the reading of Heidegger should be canceled on the left because he's become ammunition for the right. So Heidegger has slipped out of the hands of the left in part due to the Russian reinterpretation of Heidegger and, um, and some other features. Okay, okay? interesting. So, so basically, yeah, yeah your theory so is that same, kind same, of... When, yeah, Schmidt, Schmidt was just a useful tool for the left to criticize liberalism. And, uh, you know, at some point, he's going to become problematic for them, just like, just like uh, Heidegger. Okay, I, I see your theory then. Like interesting. Yeah, that's I, mean, interesting. I could be wrong, but that's my best, that's my best take. No, that's a good take. That, I, I've always been baffled by that. I think it's so hilarious that uh, such such milquetoast people get canceled for such milquetoast transgressions. And yet, uh, for some reason, Carl Schmidt has like cultural cachet on the left. I, I just find it so baffling. Um, already. So a question from Ryan McGrath here. Actually, we already ch- touched on this. The question is, what do you make of the reputation of Strauss being associated with the neocons? Uh, you mentioned that. So I think we can, we can move on. Good question. Can I just say, I want to say one, one thing about that association. Sure, I'll, please. Be brief, I'll be brief about it. No, please. So I already said, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a fair association, but the problem of the relationship between Strauss and the neoconservatives in the popular understanding parallels what Strauss thinks is a age old problem of the reputation that philosophers have among non-philosophers with respect to their political association. So Socrates was seen by some of his enemies as being in bed with, uh, with certain tyrants, you know, as having among his students certain, uh, certain shady figures. So to the extent that the philosopher is involved in political life, the problem of, his, of like the vulgar interpretation you know, of his ideological connections belongs to the essence of political philosophy as Strauss understands it. So I think he would, be un- he would, like, he would make sense of the fact that he was linked so closely to the neoconservatives but it's, uh, it's not a historical relation. It's like a conceptual problem of the relationship between philosophy and politics. But yeah, he's, Strauss is way, way up here and neoconservatism is somewhere way down there. Right, right. Okay. So there's a question from Ashley uh, who was interested in what you mentioned about the Ship of Fools. And she just wants to know if you could say a little bit more about what was the Ship of Fools and what, just say more about that if you would. You know, I've never studied it in detail, but it comes out from time to time in things that I read even recently, which is that I think it was in the early 1920s. So if you want to look at it, I think if you just Google Ship of Fools, it'll come up. But in the 1920s, the Soviet Union, was it 19, someone's writing in the chat, 1929, gathered some of its greatest intellectuals, philosophers, and thinkers, and pretty much literally shipped them out of the country. And, uh, and many of them, some of them I know because my work on Alexander Dugan has acquainted me with the original Eurasianists, some of whom were exiled for you know, that reason and were writing under those circumstances. They were not 
uh, supporters of of the communist and socialist revolutions. They were more more traditionalist and had a view about the plurality of civilizations, and they were developing other kinds of other kinds of thought. And actually, I remember now where I read it. Um, so where I read it most recently. There's a book by Vladimir Lossky called Mystical Theology of the Orthodox Church. Okay, so it's uh, about, about the, dog, the mystical dogmatic theology of Eastern Christian Orthodoxy. And I was, as I was reading more about, about him, I think he himself was on such a ship. He was on a ship of fools and he was exiled from the Soviet Union. He, he ended up in France and he has a diary called uh, Seven Days on the road in France, written in 1940s, where okay, so anyhow, he was on such a ship of fools, Vladimir Lossky. So did all of the did all of them get landed in France? Was there like one no. ship and one destination, or is this like? No, a- I think from what I understand, there was more than one ship and more than one destination. But okay. I said I haven't made a full study of it. I'd like to. It's kind of interesting. It's but very the, interesting. The, the, the bottom line is that you know somehow, uh, yeah, somehow they weren't good for the regime. They were kicked out, and the same thing is happening to certain uh, intellectuals in the regime of contemporary academy, as you and yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. And everyone, everyone who's getting put on what they call the ship of fools is uh, being welcomed onto my. Uh, ship of geniuses, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, yeah, we're gonna make we're gonna make a whole a whole uh, intellectual ecosystem out of it. So yeah, uh, their their loss is our gain, is how I think about it. But that's fascinating. I I'm, I want to learn more about that too. Ashley, if you take the course, uh, this is something maybe you could work on over the eight weeks. Uh, question, anonymous question here. Uh, is, let me make sure it's not naughty. Anonymous people, I'm always looking out for you. Uh, yeah, no. Do you think that esotericism is also necessary because some problems simply cannot be explicated clearly, quote unquote, clearly, because it can't do justice to the complexity of the problem? That's interesting. So is esotericism a kind of solution to the fact that some problems are just a little bit too big and difficult? So es- esotericism is a way of uh, dealing with that? Or is that just a not a good way to think about it? I think it's a good question. It's an interesting idea, but so far as I know, it's not one of the reasons that Strauss gives for um, es- for esoteric writing. Okay. Uh, he he does think that some some problems may not be susceptible of very clear treatment, but he doesn't use that as a reason for uh, for that kind of writing. Okay, excellent. And let's see. Uh, personal question here, which you can dodge if you want to, Michael. You don't owe anyone a- answers to personal questions, but uh, if you don't mind, the question is, uh, why did you t- uh, delete your Twitter account? Well, that's a long story and I'll spare you. The- okay, fair enough, yeah. Um, one reasonable answer would be to not rot your brain, uh, which I think a lot of people would be uh, well-served to delete their Twitter account for that reason. Uh, a question here from Ben. What exactly does it mean to be a Straussian besides a person who follows the teachings of Strauss? I've often seen this term being thrown around in a kind of derogatory way. So that's from Ben Ames. What do you make of that, Michael, the, the well, term or the descriptor Straussian? Well, the derog- I mean, some of the derogatory sense we talked about that you lie because you're covering some base motives, uh, some ignoble motives. Um, but I think that there are a couple, you know, par- partially it's going to come out in the course. But if you say, what are some key themes that characterize Straussians? This uh, division between the classical and the modern or the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, the problem of Jerusalem and Athens or philosophy and revelation, the whole question of the relationship between the philosopher and the city or the philosopher and the political community, things that we've mentioned. Uh, these are, these are some, of the, some of the key themes where if somebody didn't have those interests wouldn't necessarily be considered a Straussian. Also, there's a, there's a way of reading. So we talked about writing between the, writing between the lines, right? Esoteric writing or taking on, a, taking on um, 
for operational security and, and anonymous, uh, you know, you're posting your memes anonymously or whatever, so that you don't upset your boss. But, um, but I would say that the, the, somehow the more important part of that is not how we write, but how we read. Because it's a key idea of, Stra of Straussian reading that you have to be hypersensitive to everything that's going on in, in the book. Not just the argument, for example, in a platonic dialogue, it's not just the arguments that the characters make that's important, but to whom they're speaking, under what circumstances, what's the drama or the action of the dialogue. Strauss even paid extremely close attention to the titles of works, to, um, to everything from the first word of a work to its last word, what falls in the middle. In other words, it's a, it's a very, it's the, imagine the maximally careful reading of a text where you want to make sure you didn't miss any of the author's intention. You didn't ascribe any irregularities to his incompetence or to his uh, being in a hurry or something like that. Straussian, I think, is much more helpful to see for our purposes as a way of reading than as a way of writing. But of course, we have to understand the way of writing in order to know why we have to read so carefully in the first place. And uh, let me just give you this. I was trying to think. Whether I, sh whether I can do this with propriety. Uh, yeah, let's leave it at hypersensitivity in the reading of a text to make sure you didn't miss anything or fail to put two and two together if the author left that for you to do. Excellent, excellent, thank you, perfect. Uh, question from, there's only a couple more left. I hope I'm not keeping you too long, Michael, am I? Are we good for a couple more? We're good. Oh, uh, you made a face, I am keeping you too long, I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all, we're good, I'm enjoying it. I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna say how much I'm enjoying it, so. Oh, okay. We're, okay, we're cool. good. I, I, feel, no I always feel bad if I'm keeping people over. All right, just a few more. Um, literally th four. So one from Philip here. Uh, what was Leo Strauss's relationship with literary giants of his era, like Brecht or Verfel or Mann? So far as I know, he doesn't really write about them as the most important people in his uh, purview. So in the living issues of German post-war philosophy, there may be, let me, there may be some reference there, if I vaguely recall there or somewhere else to, to Mann. But I think that uh, I'm going to state this in my terms that I think are faithful to Strauss, which is that in the best case, a, a work of literary genius shines in the borrowed light of philosophical. So you might just as well go to the philosophical debates and somehow bracket the, um, the literary um, reflection of the philosophical debates. So for example, instead of reading uh, now, I'm not being totally fair because some of Strauss's students, they paid the greatest attention to certain literary figures, uh, but not necessarily the kinds of contemporaries that you had in mind. Um, you know, there are some Straussians who have done very careful readings of Shakespeare and things like that. But ultimately, Strauss was, he was dialed in to the thinkers, to the philosophical schools, and to the intellectuals, not so much to the literary um, establishment or person. Okay. So, so, so far, so far as I know, you know, maybe there's a private correspondence or something else, or, you know, some, but it, but it's not, it's not central as somebody who's read, I think everything that Strauss has uh, published more than once. Um, he's always talking about Machiavelli, about Hobbes. About, in other words, his target is the great political philosophers and not the literary figures in, you know, I mean, Plato's a literary figure in a certain sense, right. but that's different from Thomas Mann or whoever. For sure. Great. Good answer. And we got a question here from an anonymous attendee. Uh, do you have thoughts, Michael, on Peter Thiel's interpretation of Strauss? Are you familiar with that essay? And just what do you think he got right about Strauss? Or do you think there's anything he misses about Strauss? Yeah, so if you, um, if you look at that essay, there are a couple of things about it that are noteworthy. I mean, why he calls it the Straussian 
moment when it seems like he comes down on the side of of Girard's Christian interpretation of history, as opposed to Strauss's um, non-Christian interpretation of the human situation. But I think he's uh, he does say some things about Strauss that are that are important. I think he's right to rank Strauss above Schmidt, which he does in that essay. And uh, I think that he sets out, and I do mention Girard in one of the lectures for the course. I do mention the Straussian moment in one of the lectures for us. But for the purposes of our discussion, I think one of the key observations I'd like to make is that Thiel opposes Strauss in that essay on the surface of things in the name of the Christian alternative. So remember we said earlier that ultimately you have philosophy and revelation or, or the, the tradition of Greek science and the tradition of um, biblical religion that we have to choose from. And uh, Thiel comes down in that essay with Girard on the side of the Christian interpretation. I mean, what he says, leaving aside all the questions of, uh, of how to read that essay properly, what, what he says at first glance is that um, at, some, we, at some point, everything will be revealed, right? At some point in history, everything will be revealed, some apocalyptic moment in history. And that is foreign to uh, Strauss and it's foreign to his sources, in other words, to the classical tradition. But, um, but it's a good essay. And anybody who's watching this who hasn't read it should read it. It's not misleading about Strauss. It sets him up quite well. Excellent. Right. And I, I agree that it's a fascinating essay and it's one that we're going to talk about in the course for sure. So another question here from Nia. Uh, Nia's question, uh, shout out to Nia, who I know from a previous course. Uh, in your view, Michael, how much does Strauss write between the lines himself? Does he give us hints how to read him writing between the lines? Yes. So Strauss often employs the following principle. He says, you should read a reader, uh, sorry, you should read a writer the way he read others. You should follow his own principle of, uh, of reading when you read him. Okay. So he gives, he um, applies this pretty constantly. And if we apply it to Strauss, we have to acknowledge on his own terms, using his own reasoning, the possibility that he writes between the lines. It would be completely inconsistent for him not to do that. Because if he's a follower of Socratic rhetoric, which he seems to be, if he says you have to read an author the way they read other authors, as he does say, um, and then for those and other reasons, we have to at least, we have good rational and textual evidence for reading Strauss that way. That's like the first sort of formal logical part of the answer. In fact, yes, Strauss wrote between the lines. Yes, he left breadcrumbs and tidbits. And uh, no, I can't point all of them out for you because that would in some sense defeat the purpose. But, um, but if you look at how he says you have to read writing between the lines and you apply it to his own to his own books, you'll see some very clear cases. You'll see some uh, less clear cases, but you'll be left with no doubt that he did um, that he did write that way at least sometimes. Okay, excellent. Is that and is that fair? I don't know. I don't have to give all of the proof texts, right? I mean, no, no, leave, of course. Good to hold leave back. something to the imagination. Absolutely. It's it's also excellent marketing, Michael, because it means people will be more interested in taking the course. Uh, so I, I, I applaud. Uh, and the final question here is uh, from Rob. Could you comment on the West Coast versus East Coast Straussian divide? What's that all about? And, and do you have any takes on it? So I'll just say, for me, it's helpful to think about it in this sort of schematic way. That for West Coast Straussians, the important thing is to do a reduction from our culture wars and from all of the political, uh, you know, things that we're arguing about here down to the fundamentals of the regime as constituted. So for example, you go to the founding fathers of the American regime. And if you lived outside of America, you would trace 
things down to the roots of the founding fathers of your regime because there's a wisdom present at the founding moment of a constitutional or constituted order that always needs to be recovered when there's been you know, a gap or a break introduced for one reason or another. So the difference in my schematization is that the West Coast Rossians want to take us to the constituted order, like the founding fathers in the United States, whereas the East Coast Rossians want to take you even further down to the philosophical foundation that precedes the, the act of a political founding. So East Coast Rossians, as a rule, want to go uh, deeper, so to speak, or further than the, uh, the founding fathers, all the way down to the hidden legislators of the world, uh, the poets and philosophers in the most exalted sense. So that's, that's kind of how I, I see that division. And you can say in the case, that's sort of like a generalization of the American case, because in the American case, you could say, look, West Coast Rossians are concerned with defending American founding fathers. But as a, concept, as a conceptualization, it's really going down to the basics of the regime versus going down to the, um, the philosophical uh, belly of the beast. All right. Awesome. Uh, dude, Michael, this was excellent. This was truly a, a masterclass in itself. So thank you so much for doing this, uh, giving us your, your, your A game here on really interesting topics and also fielding questions with uh, extraordinary competence. This was really, really edifying even just to, to be a part of it myself. So big thank you to Michael, to Michael for coming out. Uh, thanks to everyone who came out and hung out in the, asked some very good questions in the Q&A. A lot of those questions were quite, quite thoughtful questions. So I'm grateful for that. If you don't already have the reading list, you can get a copy of that. It's uh, floating around the internet. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, just go to otherlife.co slash Strauss and you can find more about the course and just get the, the syllabus. And uh, so you can get started reading or if, even if you don't want to take the course, but you just want to study Strauss by yourself, totally use uh, Michael's syllabus and reading guide to study Strauss on your own if you want for an eight week period. But if you are interested in these topics and going much, much deeper on them in a community of other thoughtful, intelligent people trying to make their own progress on these, on these massive questions, then definitely uh, stay tuned for the course. The course will be opening, uh, it'll be starting on January 23rd. That's a Saturday. But if, uh, if, you, if you download the syllabus or if you signed up for this uh, seminar tonight, uh, as long as I have your email, you'll get an email about more information on the course. I'll be, uh, I'll be sending out emails over the next few weeks uh, in the lead up to the course, letting you know more information about how things are going to work, what to expect, uh, you know, how much it will cost and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so yeah, just stay tuned for that. We're both really excited to open that up in January and uh, we're excited to meet all of you who want to go deeper on this with us. I'll spare you all the kind of logistical details and, and all of that. Uh, as I said, I'll send out emails. No need to go over it now. It's not very interesting for you know, video or podcast content. So yeah, I just want to thank everyone for coming out. Again, a big thank you to Michael. And Michael, I'll be seeing more of you soon. Sounds good. Thanks again, Justin. Thank you. Take it easy, Michael. You're good to go. Bye, Bye everybody. And uh, if you're listening on YouTube or the podcast, uh, please do go and subscribe. Hit that bell on YouTube. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions on this, let me know. And yeah, you can leave a reply, whatever you want. Shoot me an email. But uh, that was awesome. Super pumped on this. As I said, Michael is super legit. And uh, yeah, it, the academia's loss is our gain. And that's what I'm building. Everything I'm building is about basically building structures and systems for the brightest and most legit philosophers and thinkers and scientists to be able to develop their own projects and courses uh, in a way that is really interesting and empowering for people who are interested in learning about that stuff and working on their own intellectual projects. But that also in the long run can be, can get them the impact and hopefully even the financial stability that, that they deserve. So, so far I'm doing well. I'm, I'm quite proud of the courses I've done so far. 
and yeah, I've learned a thing or two about how to do it well. And so I'm just delighted to keep building that out. Glad to have Michael on as the next edition. I think as you saw in today's, today's talk, uh, he's the real deal for sure. So thanks everyone. I'm going to call it a night and I will talk to you all later. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.